This is a Federal News Network podcast. If you want to help change the world, the State Department isn't a bad place to start. And if you want to get a foot into the door at the State Department, a paid internship isn't a bad way to go. This fall, the State Department launches a new paid student internship program. And here with the details, the Director of Recruitment in State's Bureau of Global Talent Management, Mika Schweitzer-Bloom. Ms. Schweitzer-Bloom, good to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's my pleasure. And this is the first time that State Department internships have been paid. Is that correct? That is correct. This is a new initiative that we are able to do with new funding from Congress. Um, It's something we've been advocating for for a couple of years. Our director general testified in Congress about it about 19 months ago. And we really have been advocating for this because it lifts barriers that have existed and prevented many, many students from pursuing internships with us. So we're very excited that we now can pay people and open the door to a much wider range of students from all backgrounds and lift that barrier. And students of what age are eligible for this type of program? The students have to be U.S. citizens. They have to be at least 18 years old. They do need to be either enrolled in an undergraduate or graduate program and have at least 60 credit hours under their belt to apply. What are the range of internship assignments that will be available to them? Yeah, we take interns in all of our departments in our headquarters in Washington, D.C., at many of our field offices around the United States and at many of our embassies overseas. So it's a really unique internship in that way. We take interns who are studying all majors. We at the State Department work on policy issues that range the gamut. So we really are looking for folks that have a wide variety of backgrounds. And we're looking for folks that want to work with us on our specialists fields, diplomatic security maybe, or our information technology, or in our administrative bureau working on our worldwide operation. It's quite a challenge. So we're really looking for students who are interested in a dynamic internship that's going to expose them to the operation of the Department of State and hopefully interest them in a future career with us. Well, it seems like the timing is good because the State Department is in the news almost every day now with the conflict in the Ukraine and so forth. So state is pretty prominent, fair to say, right now. We are quite busy. We do keep ourselves busy and uh, on behalf of the United States and the people of the United States, trying to advance our interests around the world and to try and contribute to global prosperity and peace. And these are really great opportunities. Our interns can work on anything from right now, supply chain issues are a big issue, cybersecurity, a huge issue, international organizations, you know, the negotiations and the decisions in the UN. So there's such a wide variety of things that students can get experience in. But nobody will get the chance to throw a pie in Sergey Lavrov's face, though, right? <laughs> well, we, we don't do that in <laughs> <Right>. the State <laughs> Department, Tom. <laughs> Got it. And how many internships will be open in the fall, and how are you promulgating this program to the campuses? Yeah, we've put out announcements on all of our platforms. We put out a media notice. We've uh, been in touch with all of the campuses across the country that we work with. We've messaged all of the folks that have ever expressed interest in internships with us. So probably the message at this point has gone to hundreds of thousands of people. Um, We are planning to bring on up to 200 interns for the fall in this new paid internship program. And this is competitive, correct? 
It is competitive. The application is open right now. It's open through April 12th or until we receive 1,000 qualified applications. So we will be looking at 1,000 applications and doing our part to select folks to work across the department in those 200 positions. We're speaking with Mika Schweitzer-Bloom. She's Director of Recruitment in the Bureau of Global Talent Management at the State Department. And let's look inside for a moment for those managers and bureaus and offices that get an intern. What is incumbent upon them to make sure that the intern doesn't stand there in open mail for six months? Yeah, our if you still interns... Get mail. We, we do still get mail. No, our interns really are put into substantive positions. Our managers look at this as a really great opportunity to give people substantive exposure to the work that we do. So our managers know that they need to be giving the interns real work. Um, maybe they might be working on trying to help put together uh, data analysis for something, or maybe they might be working on putting together a program for the visit of the secretary to a particular country, or they might be working with our overseas Bureau of Buildings and Building Operations, looking at building a new embassy. What's going on there? Uh, Are there security issues that we need to be worried about? Is the contractor on time? That kind of thing. So really substantive work. And the managers know that. Generally, our interns have incredible experiences, really unique to the work that we do. And I imagine that for the managers that have an intern, it's an opportunity for mentorship as well as just getting work out of somebody below the standard GS rates. Absolutely. Despite the fact that we are in the news, as you pointed out, we do still tend to be a little bit of an unknown organization. And so we do view this as an opportunity to introduce people to the work that we do and to expose them to careers in either the civil service or the foreign service and the paths that they might then choose. So managers definitely look at this as an opportunity to mentor and coach people and entice them into work with us in the future. And the State Department has had internship programs earlier, unpaid through the years. Any well-known State Department figures that have come through internship? Yeah, we've had internship programs for decades. Um, I think probably our most famous internship alum is Secretary Condoleezza Rice, who was an intern in our Bureau of Education and Cultural Affairs when she was a student. She remarked on this on her first day as Secretary of State and reminded everyone, be kind to your interns and give them a good experience because you never know where they might come back. So we really look at the potential for our interns is limitless. I can tell you after 45 years of professional work, that's absolutely true. They do (laughs) pop up again in funny ways. And that was my question. There is the opportunity for permanent employment for the interns. Maybe after they graduate or something, do they get a little head start for State Department employment if they so choose? It's not directly linked to employment. However, with the experience and the exposure to our operation, they certainly are well positioned to understand the opportunities that exist and to explain to us how their skills and experiences really do apply to the position that they may be applying to in the civil service or to the career that they're applying to in the foreign service. And by the way, if an intern comes in for a specific function, say developing a data program or working in the operational end of a building, do they also get exposed to the other channels within state, if only by introduction and here's what we do over here? 
Yeah, absolutely. Our organization is a very interconnected organization. You can't work in one part of the building and not know what everybody else in the building is doing or find yourself collaborating with people in other parts of the building and other bureaus or with our embassies overseas or if you're overseas with Washington. So our interns definitely get exposure to the whole of department operation and understand how it all fits together. And with 200 positions and knowing that these can be really productive, great people, I imagine within the State Department, there's kind of a competition. Hey, make sure I get one. There is a lot of demand and interest in receiving an intern because it is a competitive process and we are looking for talented individuals from all backgrounds. We're really encouraging people who may not have considered an internship when it was unpaid to consider it now. So looking for folks who maybe who are underrepresented and past internship programs to consider applying. But yes, our bureaus and our managers are very excited about getting interns. Mika Schweitzer-Bloom is Director of Recruitment in the Bureau of Global Talent Management at the State Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, for giving me this opportunity. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that, I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffel Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.